0: Section 16 of the Critique of Dogmatic Theology, An Investigation of the Christian Teaching by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Leo Wiener. Chapter 11, Part 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. How else was he to have called himself in order to prove to them that he did not consider himself to be God, but a son of God, which he taught all men to be? Here is the whole passage. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I shewed you from my Father. For which of those works do ye stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy and because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, Ye are gods? If he called them gods, unto whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, say ye of him, whom the Father hath sanctified, and sent into the world, thou blasphemest. Because I said, I am the Son of God? If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not." But if I do, though ye believe not me, believe the works, that ye may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. How could he have said more plainly that he was not God, but that those were in whom was the word of God, and that he called himself, as all other people, a son of God? But the theology takes this as a proof that Jesus Christ confessed that he was God, equal to God, and proceeds... A third, similar, but still more striking case happened before the death of the Savior. He was brought bound before Pilate to be judged. Here, after listening to many false witnesses against Jesus, the high priest finally rose and solemnly asked him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus, without any hesitation, replied, I am. And ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power, and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He hath spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now ye have heard his blasphemy. What think ye? They answered and said, He is guilty of death. And bringing Jesus before Pilate, the Jews said to him, We have a law, and by our law he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. Thus the Savior did not hesitate to confirm the truth of his divinity by his own death. Christ is again asked in court, not whether he recognizes himself to be God, there is not even a question about that, but whether he is the Son of God, and Christ replies, I am, and immediately afterwards speaks the significance of the Son of Man, who, according to his expression, is sitting on the right hand of power in the clouds. He is condemned for calling himself the Son of God, and from this is deduced the proof that he is God. The Jews are all the time accusing Christ, who is calling all to acknowledge his Sonhood of God, and who is blasphemous because he makes himself the equal of God. Christ keeps replying that not he is one born near to God, the Son of God, but the Son of Man, and he repeats the same in court and for this he suffers capital punishment. And this is taken as a proof of his acknowledging himself to be God, and considering the divinity of Christ proved by himself, the theology sees a further confirmation of it in the fact that Christ describes to himself as the Son of Man, the one-born God, the attribute of a divinity. In proof of this are adduced the following verses, And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever, I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. As the Father knoweth me, Even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father. Neither knoweth any man the Father, save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. All these verses, according to the theology, show that Christ ascribed to himself divine attributes. Omnipresence, self-existence, eternity, almightiness, Omniscience. All these verses speak only of the oneness of birth of the Son of Man with God, but in no way prove the especial divinity of Christ, as the theology tries to prove. On the same basis, it would be just as correct to ascribe a Godhead to Christ's disciples, to whom he on every side repeated one and the same thought that they were in him and he was in them, just as the Father was in him. With this, end the proofs of the Godhead of Christ as expressed by him. After that follows proofs from the words of the apostles. As Christ the Savior taught about himself, even so his disciples taught about him, according to the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. For example, the evangelist Matthew, representing the miraculous conception of the Savior, refers to him the prophecy of Isaiah, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. I quote everything which is said about it in this theology without leaving out a single line. This is regarded as the first proof from the words of the apostles. One reads and wonders how it is possible to explain these words as a proof that Christ is God. Emmanuel is a name which means God with us. This passage is quoted from the prophet to prove that Jesus was the Messiah. What connection there is between these words and the divinity of Christ is absolutely inexplicable. Second proof. The evangelist Mark begins his gospel with the words, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And later, when he tells of the baptism of the Savior, he says, And straightway, coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opened, and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. The words of the gospel, the Son of God, and Thou art my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased, signify only that the beloved son of God can by no means be God himself. The evangelist Luke quotes the prophecy of the angel to Zechariah about the coming birth of his son John, the forerunner of the Savior. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God, and he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias. The words of the prophecy of the angel to Zacharias refer to God and not to Christ. Fourth proof. Saint John begins his gospel with the words, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That is, he directly calls the word God, represents it as existing from the beginning, or from eternity, separate from God, and as having created everything which exists. Farther on, he writes, And the word was made flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. That is, he bears testimony to the fact that this word is indeed the only begotten Son of God, the Father, that it became incarnated, and is none but Jesus Christ. That the word is none but Jesus Christ, who has created everything, not only does not appear from anything, but to anyone who will carefully read the whole chapter, it will become clear that the word logos, has a general metaphysical meaning, which is quite independent of Christ. No matter how this chapter is understood, it is evident that its meaning is not that Christ is God. In order to say that, it is not necessary to speak of the word, nor of the light, nor of the birth of men. The proof which the church deduces from this chapter about the divinity of Christ is based on the arbitrary connection of one sentence of verse 1, where it says, In the beginning was the word, with verse 14, where it says that the word was made flesh, and then with verse 17, where it says that grace was given by Jesus Christ. The first sentence of the first verse does not stand alone, but is a connecting sentence between the first and the last. After that, mention is made of the light which shines on every man who comes into the world, of the birth of men, of the power or possibility for all to become the children of God, Not of Christ alone, who was begotten of God, but of the many which were born of God. All such ideas, far from confirming the proposition that the Word is Christ, show directly that the Word, or the Logos, is the beginning of the true life of all men. Then mention is made of the fact that the Word was made flesh, and from the subsequent verses we must assume that the appearance of Jesus Christ is meant. But here, in the 17th verse, Nothing is said about this word being Christ himself, but there is reference to the manner in which this word found its expression for men. It found its expression in grace and truth, and, it seems, excludes every possibility of acknowledging Christ to be God. Immediately it goes on to say, No man hath seen God at any time, so that the words, We beheld his glory, can by no means be referred to Christ the God, whereas this very passage is regarded as the best proof of the divinity of Christ. Farther on, says the theology, no man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared. That is, he shows that Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son in the proper sense, as existing in the bosom of the Father. If the only begotten Son of the Father professed the God whom no man can ever see— then it is evident that this son is not God. But the theology makes the opposite deduction. In concluding his gospel, says the theology, the evangelist remarks that the purpose of his writing was to prove the Godhead of Jesus Christ. But these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. This is simply untrue. John's remark does not intend to prove the divinity of Christ, but speaks only of Christ's sonhood to God. The same Apostle, in the beginning of his first epistle, calls Christ the Word of Life, that eternal life which was with the Father, and was manifested to us. And at the end of the epistle he says, And we know that the Son of God is come, and hath given us an understanding, that we may know him that is true and we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life, calling here the true Son of God and true God, him who before he had called the eternal life. This discussion is simply unscrupulous. The words, he that is true, can apparently not be referred to Christ, but refer to God. Those are all the proofs from the Gospels. Finally, in Revelation are frequently quoted the words of the Savior who appeared to him I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, the first and the last. And there it is said that Christ is the Prince of the kings of the earth, and King of kings, and Lord of lords. As anyone may see, even in these passages of Revelation, a book which has no significance for the explanation of the teachings of Christ. There is not even an indication of the divinity of Christ. Then follow proofs from the apostles. St. Jude, the apostle, representing the heretics, says, For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. The oldest text of the epistle of St. Jude read as follows. Denying the only Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. In the later, and in our texts, it runs as follows. Denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. In the first reading, there cannot even be a question about the Godhead of Christ. In the second, one would think there can be even less any question about the Godhead of Christ. For here God is called, as he is always called, only And after him, Jesus Christ is mentioned as a prophet or righteous man. But the absence of such proofs are regarded as proofs. Even such are the proofs from the epistle of St. Paul. Here they are. St. Paul calls the Savior in his epistles, God manifest in the flesh, the Lord of glory, the great God, God blessed forever, God's own Son, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, He ascribes to Him divine attributes, eternity, unchangeableness, almightiness, and says, For by Him were all things created, that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones, or dominions, or principalities, or powers. All things were created by Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and by Him all things consist." In these epistles, Christ is in three places called God. I examine the texts and I discover that all three indications by St. Paul that Christ is God are based on the addition of words to the old texts and on the incorrectness of the translations and the punctuation. The passage in Timothy is read in various ways. In the oldest text, the word God does not occur at all, but instead of it, there is a relative pronoun, now of the masculine and now of the neuter gender. In any case, this whole verse refers to Christ and not to God. And the substitution in later texts of the word God for the pronoun cannot serve as a proof of the divinity of Christ. Then follows the passage Titus two eleven through 13 The verse stands as follows, Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. The conjunction and is taken by the theology to be the same as a colon and an equality. And instead of understanding the passage, as many similar passages are understood, as speaking of the glory of God and of Jesus Christ, these words are taken as a proof of the divinity of Christ. Finally, the last passage is Romans 9, 5. This passage is read in such a way that Christ is called a blessed God only because the punctuation mark, which ought to stand after flesh Christ came, has been changed from a period to a comma. The whole verse ought to read, whose the Jews are the fathers, and whose Christ is according to the flesh. After that, there ought to be a period. Then follows the usual praise to God, who is over all God, is blessed forever, and not blessed forever. This intentional error is regarded as a proof of the divinity of Christ. In the whole book, Christ is mentioned as a prophet, and the words son of God are not even used, but instead, theo. that is, more correctly, servant of God. Those are all the proofs. It is evident that those are not proofs, but juxtapositions of words which may serve as a confirmation of a proposition which has no foundation whatever in the Gospels and the Epistles. For any man who studies Holy Scripture in the original, who is acquainted with the criticism of Scripture and of the history of the Church, it is evident that in the first century of Christianity, when the Epistles and Gospels were written, there was not even any mention made of the divinity of Christ. "...the best refutal of the proofs of the Church about the Godhead of Christ is found in the vain endeavors which it makes to find anything resembling a proof. Everything which might have looked as an indication, every such a phrase, every juxtaposition of words, every blunder, every chance for an incorrect reading, is taken as a proof, but no real proof exists or can exist, because that idea was foreign to Christ and to his disciples." This is especially apparent from the reading of the Acts of the Apostles in the original. Here is described the teaching of the Apostles, and here Christ is mentioned many times. And not only is he not spoken of as God, but no special meaning above any saint is ascribed to him. He is called Saint, Prophet, Messenger of God but not even heos, as John and Paul call him, but Theo, which can in no way be connected with the present teaching of the church about Christ the God. But in order to have clear and manifest proofs of the fact that the chief disseminator of the teaching of Christ, Paul, never even so much as thought of the divinity of Christ, it is necessary to read those passages of his epistles which directly determine the relations of Christ to God. But to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in Him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by Him, one God and Father of all, and in us all, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, and so forth. The head of Christ is God. Simplest and most indubitable of all, it is in 1 Timothy 2.5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Indeed, there appears a man who teaches men of the relation which ought to exist between man and God, and preaches this teaching to all men. His relation, and that of all men to God, he expresses by the relation of the Son to the Father. That there might be no misunderstanding, he calls himself, and men in general, the Son of Man, and says that the Son of Man is the Son of God. In explaining man's relation to God, he says that as the Son ought to emulate the Father, and have one aim and one will with him, in the parable of the shepherd, even so must man strive to be like God, and to do the same that God is doing. And he says of himself that he is the Son of God. Indeed, what else could Christ have said, since he taught them the Sonhood to God? If he cannot help saying about himself that he is a son of God, since it is this precisely that he is teaching to all men, there cannot be said of him what neither the Jews nor he himself had the least idea about, that he was God and the second person of the Trinity. For though he never denied his filial relation to God, he never ascribed any special importance to it. He was told, If you are a simple man, like all, eating and drinking with the publicans, You have nothing to teach us about. But if you are a son of God, a Messiah, show us your power or be executed. He denied both. He said, I am not a simple man. I am fulfilling the will of God my father and teaching men about it. But I am also not a special son of God, but the only one who is doing his father's will. And this I teach to all men. It is with this that he struggled all his life. And this they now ascribe to him and try to prove that he said what he actually denied and what, if he had said it, would have destroyed the whole meaning of his teaching. According to the teaching of the church, it turns out that God descended to earth only in order to save men. Their salvation consists in believing that he is God. It would not have been much trouble for him to say outright, I am God, or if not outright, at least not by such circumlocution that there is a possibility of understanding him quite differently without any desire to do wrong. Let it even be by circumlocution, if only it would be possible to explain his words as meaning that he was God. Well, even if his words were not exact, at least they should not contradict the statement that he was God. But, as it is, He has spoken in such a way that it is not possible to understand him otherwise than that he asserted to many that he was not God. If he had only revealed this secret to his nearest disciples so that they might have imparted it to other men, but as it is, the disciples taught only that he was a righteous man, a mediator between man and God, and not a God. Suddenly, it turns out that for our salvation, which comes from him, His words have to be comprehended, not as he and his disciples have spoken them, and that we must not rely on our common sense, but must believe the church, which, basing itself on tricks and misinterpretations of certain verses, asserts the opposite of what he has said about himself, and what his disciples have said of him. I have not dwelt on this passage in order to prove that Christ is not God. It is useless to prove that. For to him who believes in God... Christ cannot be God. That was already evident in the exposition of the dogma of the Trinity and of the whole consequent inevitable tangle. But I have dwelt on this part as on one in which lies the source of all the preceding monstrosities and absurdities. It is evident to me that after Christ's death, his disciples, who were profoundly affected by his teaching in speaking and writing of him, of the man who taught that all men were the sons of God and must blend with God in life, and who in his life up to his death carried out this subjection of himself to the will of God and this union with him. It is evident to me that his disciples called him divine and the beloved son of God on account of the elevation of his teaching and of his life, which fully realized his teaching. And it is explicable to me how ignorant people listening to the teaching of the apostles did not understand it, but instead understood the mere words And on these ignorantly conceived words built up their own teaching, and with the stubbornness which generally goes with ignorance, stuck to their comprehension, denying every other interpretation, even because they were unable to understand it. And how later such ignorant people confirmed this terrible error at the first and the second ecumenical councils. In the dogma of the original sin, I can admit the comprehension of those people who in the story of the fall of man can see nothing but that there was an Adam and that he did not keep God's command not to eat of the forbidden fruit. This comprehension is not wrong. It is crude. Even thus, I can admit the comprehension of men who say that Jesus was God and by his death and suffering saved men. This comprehension is not wrong. It is only crude and imperfect. The conception of man's fall as due to the fact that he did not obey God is correct insofar as it expresses the idea that man's dependence, weakness, death, all those are the consequences of his carnal passions. Just as correct is the statement that Christ was God insofar as was actually the fact and as John says, as he made God manifest to us. But the moment men begin to assert that the form in which this thought is expressed is the only truth, I no longer can admit what they say, because their elucidations and assertions explain the meaning of the idea which they enunciate. And this idea excludes the possibility of all oneness of faith, and clearly shows that the source of their stubbornness in the assertions is crudity and ignorance. It is precisely this that the church has been doing all the time in the name of its sanctity and infallibility. After this follows Article 134. The Lord Jesus has a human nature and is indeed the son of the Virgin Mary. Then Article 135 proves that Christ was born in human form from the Virgin Mary and that Mary, having given birth to him, remained a virgin. There are quoted proofs for what cannot be comprehended and explanations of the fathers of the church. Not only did they teach so, but they frequently tried to disclose that such a miraculous manner of the Messiah's birth was possible and exceedingly proper. In proof, or as an explanation of the possibility, they pointed to the almightiness of God and to certain other miraculous cases of the kind, as, for example, to the burning bush which did not burn up, and to the fact that the Savior, after his resurrection, entered through closed doors into the room where his disciples were. The Lord Jesus is a sinless man. The Word of God teaches us, in the first place, that the Lord does not partake of the original sin. In the second place, the Word of God teaches us that our Lord Jesus is quite free from any personal sin. In pursuance of so clear a teaching of the Word of God, the church has invariably believed that our Lord Jesus, consubstantial with us according to his manhood, is like us in all but sin, This sinlessness of Christ the Savior, the Church has since antiquity understood not merely in the sense that he is free from the original and all-voluntary sin, but also in the sense that he cannot even sin, and that he is free from all sensuous desires or propensities to sin, free from all inward temptation. Therefore, when Theodore of Mopsustia took the liberty to assert, among other things, that our Lord Jesus was not exempt from inward temptations and the struggle of the passions, the Fifth Ecumenical Council, in the year 553, condemned this heresy as one of the most important ones. 2. On the unity of the hypostasis in Jesus Christ The actuality of the union in Christ of two natures in one hypostasis. In professing two natures, a divine and a human, in Jesus Christ our Lord, We at the same time profess that there is in him but one person, and that the two natures are in him combined into one hypostasis of God the Word, for we believe that the Son of God assumed in his own hypostasis the human flesh, which was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary from the Holy Ghost and became incarnate, and that consequently his humanity has in him no special personality and does not form a separate hypostasis, but was accepted by his divinity into a union with his divine hypostasis. Or, let us say with the words of St. John Damascene, The hypostasis of God the Word became incarnate, having received from the Virgin the beginning of our composition, the flesh animated by a reasoning and rational soul, so that it itself became a hypostasis of flesh. One and the same hypostasis of the Word having become a hypostasis of two essences, does not permit any one of them to be an hypostatic, nor does it permit them to be variously hypostatic among themselves. Nor is it the hypostasis now of one essence and now of another, but always remains a hypostasis of both hypostases indivisibly and inseparably. The flesh of God the Word did not assume an independent hypostasis and did not become a hypostasis different from the hypostasis of God the Word, but having in it received a hypostasis was rather received into the hypostasis of God the Word than became an independent hypostasis. It is absolutely impossible to render this into one's own words. It is simply the delirium of an insane man. The trinity in one person breaks up into two, and these two are again one. Holy Scripture presents the firmest foundations of this truth. It teaches that in Christ Jesus, with two essences, a divine and a human, there is one hypostasis, one person, and that this hypostasis of the Word or of the Son of God, having accepted and united with itself the human hypostasis with the divine, abides inseparably as one hypostasis of either essence. All that is confirmed by Holy Scripture, the fathers of the church and the decrees of the councils. Finally, common sense too is invoked. And common sense, on the basis of theological principles, cannot help but notice that the Nestorian heresy, which divided Jesus Christ into two persons, absolutely rejects the mystery of the Incarnation and the mystery of the Redemption. If the divinity and the humanity in Christ are not united into one hypostasis, but form two separate persons, if the Son of God was united with Christ the man only morally and not physically and lived in him, as formerly in Moses and the prophets, then there was no incarnation at all, and it is impossible to say the word was flesh, or God sent his Son born of a woman. For it would turn out that the Son of God was not born of a woman and did not take upon himself the human flesh, but only coexternally became consubstantial with Christ who was born of a woman." On the other hand, if for us suffered and died on the cross not the Son of God, with his flesh taken up by him into a union with his hypostasis, but a simple man, Christ, who had only a moral union with the Son of God, then there could not have taken place our redemption, because man, no matter how holy he may be, on account of his limitations, is not able to bring sufficient satisfaction to the infinite justice of God for the sins of the whole human race." and by tearing down the mystery of the Incarnation and the mystery of the Redemption, the Nestorian heresy tore down the whole structure of the Christian faith. Thus, it turns out that what cannot be comprehended or even expressed, what cannot be thought of otherwise than by learning it by heart and repeating these words, is precisely what the whole structure of the Christian faith is reared on. In connection with the disclosure of this dogma, one involuntarily comes to the conclusion that the dogma of the Trinity and those of the redemption, of grace, of incarnation, that the more monstrous and senseless they are, the more important they turn out to be in the opinion of the church, and the more controversies there have been in regard to them. Have there been so many controversies because the dogma is monstrous? Or has the dogma turned out to be so monstrous because it is the outgrowth of controversy and malice? I think both have happened. A dogma, which by its nature is monstrous, causes controversy, and the controversy makes the dogma still more monstrous. Another remarkable thing is that the more important a dogma is regarded to be by the church, the more controversies and malice and executions there have been, and the less meaning or possibility of moral application it has. The dogmas of the emanation of the spirit, of the essence of Christ, of the Sacrament of Communion, have agitated the Church in proportion as they were removed from any possibility of a moral application. After that follows. The manner of the hypostatic union in Christ of the two natures. In what manner the two essences in Jesus Christ, the divine and the human, in spite of their difference, were united into one hypostasis. How he, being perfect God and perfect man, is only one person, All that, according to the word of God, is a great mystery of godliness, and consequently inaccessible to our reason. But insofar as this mystery is accessible for our faith, the Holy Church teaches us, on the basis of the same word of God, that the two essences have united in our Savior. On the one hand, without blending, and unchangeably or immovably, in spite of the heresy of the Monophysites, who blended the two essences in Christ, or who assumed in him the transformation of the divinity into flesh. On the other hand, inseparably, in spite of the error of the Nestorians, who separated the essences in Christ, and of other heretics who denied that they had been united constantly and uninterruptedly, the dogma of the Council of Chalcedon. This is proved besides from scripture. Finally, also from considerations of common sense, which on the basis of its natural principles cannot in any way admit that the divine and human essences should have blended or mingled in Christ and formed a new third essence, having lost their attributes, for the Godhead is unchangeable. And the blending or mingling of two quite simple essences, of the human soul and of the divinity, is impossible. And so much the more physically impossible is the blending of the coarse human flesh with the simplest divinity nor that the divine essence should have changed into a human or the human into a divine essence. The first is contrary to the unchangeableness and unlimitedness of God. The latter is contrary to the limitedness of man. On the basis of the principles of the revealed, or Christian theology, reason must tell us that only in the unblended and untransferred union of the two essences in Jesus Christ, and only with their perfect integrity— could have taken place the great work of our redemption. For the Savior could have suffered on the cross only with his humanity, and only his divinity could give an infinite value to his sufferings. Consequently, to acknowledge in Christ the blending or transmutation of the two essences into one means to overthrow the mystery of our redemption. The consequences of the hypostatic union of the two essences in Jesus Christ in relation to himself The consequences of the first kind are the communication in Jesus Christ of the two attributes of his essences. It consists in this, that in the person of Jesus Christ, each of his essences transfers its attributes to the other, namely, what is proper to him according to his humanity is appropriated to him as to God, and what is proper to him according to his divinity is appropriated to him as to man. The deification of the human essence in Jesus Christ. The deification is not in the sense that the human in Christ is changed into divinity, has lost its limitedness, and has received in the place of the human attributes other attributes of God, but that, having been received by the Son of God into a union with his hypostasis, it has been communicated to his divinity, has become one with God the Word, and through incorporation with the divinity, has been heightened in its perfections to the highest degree to which humanity can rise, at the same time not ceasing to be humanity. To Jesus Christ, as to the one person, to the God-man, it behoves us to give one, undivided divine worship, both according to his Godhead and according to his humanity. In Jesus Christ, there are two wills and two actions. There follow long controversies about the two wills and the two actions refutals and proofs from scripture and from common sense. The mental morbidity has so increased in this chapter that it is painful to read it, if you read with the desire to understand what the author is talking about. Then, in accordance with the subdivision made in the beginning of the chapter, where it said that the consequences of the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ are of two kinds in relation to himself, to the Virgin Mary, and to the Most Holy Trinity. In relation to the Most Holy Virgin, the Mother of our Lord Jesus, the consequences of the hypostatic union in relation to the Virgin Mary are analyzed. Contents, a polemic with the Macedonians and the Nestorians. The subdivision about the consequences in relation to Christ and to the Virgin Mary is made only in order to dispute against Nestorius, who called the Virgin Mary the Mother of Christ. In relation to the Most Holy Trinity, It is proved that, in spite of the Incarnation, the Trinity remained a Trinity. This is the way it is to be understood. The words of St. John Damascene, I do not introduce a fourth person into the Trinity, which it shall not be, but I profess the one person of God the Word and of his flesh. The Trinity remained the Trinity even after the Incarnation of the Word. The flesh of God the Word did not receive an independent hypostasis, and did not become a hypostasis different from the hypostasis of God the Word. But in it, having received the hypostasis, it became rather received into the hypostasis of God the Word than an independent hypostasis. For this reason, it does not remain hypostatic and introduce another hypostasis into the Trinity. Moral application of the dogma about the mystery of the incarnation. All these dogmas give us the following lessons. All these blasphemous controversies, in the opinion of the author, confirm the faith in us. Faith reminds us of hope. Kindles in us the love for God. Teaches us to glorify not only God, but also to glorify with all the strength of our being the most holy, most blessed, glorious Lady, our Mother of God and ever Virgin Mary. To respect in ourselves the dignity of man, because Christ was God and man. Finally, presents to us in the incarnated Son of God a most perfect example for emulation, in accordance with his own words, for I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. End of section 16.